Mary, question for you. What's your favorite index? Ooh, tough one. I don't know, Dan. I'm torn between the Dow Jones and the FTSE 100. Mm, pretty good. I've got a new one for you. Okay. The Bloomberg Pret Index. No. Yeah, it is trying to measure turnover in different branches of Pret around the world, actually, but also in different places in London. Right. It's on bloomberg.com slash Pret Index. Put a link in the show notes. Some very interesting results indeed. Okay. So this is looking at over time, right? So we can compare now to before everyone stopped going into offices. Exactly. Exactly. It's trying to yeah. try to track the, the footfall turnover now versus pre-COVID. Um, right. Just, just minuting stats pulling off you really quickly. So you take the London West End one, that's near Malibone, near mm-hmm. where our offices are. Yeah. That index is actually back to 100. So that's back to pre-COVID levels. Okay. London City, any guess where that is roughly? It's going to be lower, isn't it? Because people come to the West End for more than just work. Exactly. Exactly. It is. It is lower. It's down about 80% of pre-COVID. Um, okay. Paris, about that same level. We actually got New York even, even lower than that. So the New York index is down around 50% or something. But interestingly, London suburbs, well, well above, back above over 100%. That is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. I mean, the West End being back to 100 Given my journey to London this morning, not that surprising. It's the first time I've had to wait for a tube. I didn't get the first tube because it was too full. And that's the first time it's happened since That's since a good COVID. indicator. That's a good indicator, but, yeah. I, I yeah. guess L- London suburbs probably don't stretch out to Winchester, do they? I might offend a few Winchester people by suggesting it's London suburb, right? You wouldn't you wouldn't. Yeah, Dan, that. I did choose to leave London when I moved yeah. to Winchester. <laughs> so, yeah, so Winchester's not not listed on there as its own. No, so no, measure. strange, strangely not. We've got London, New York, Paris, Hong Kong. Didn't it didn't didn't have Winchester on? There isn't a Pret right by the station, which might make a difference. Actually, I wonder. That's the next level of index analysis, isn't it? Where is that Pret located in each of those places? Yeah, that is, and the, the stage after that is they'll be writing relative value options on it before you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> All right, should we do this? Yeah, let's get on with it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. One other thing, just super quick before we get started. I know we've been promising all the listeners an episode on that book, Trillions, since Christmas. Um, I know we're a little bit late delivering that. We did promise it back at Christmas. We're a little bit late, but delighted to say we are now going to be speaking to the author, Robin Wigglesworth, really soon, and we're hoping to run that episode next week. So that's just a little bit of advance warning. If you still haven't read it, it's really a good read. We both read it over Christmas, really enjoyed it. The book's called Trillions. It's a history of the index fund, but it is super interesting, super exciting. Uh, And we're delighted to be speaking with the author, uh, FT journalist, Robin Wigglesworth, soon. So um, have a read and join us next week for that one. Hi, everyone. This week, we are talking about something really important that I think can often go a little bit underappreciated in investing, and that's governance. We're delighted to have a real governance expert here today for that conversation. Delighted to welcome LCP's Head of Governance Consulting, Rachika Kure. Rachika, welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Welcome, Rachika. Before we get stuck into the episode, I think it'd be really helpful if you give people a sense of the role that you have at LCP. Yeah, sure. So as Head of Governance Consulting, I play a couple of roles at LCP. 
So firstly, I am a professional trustee secretary, but then I also work with a lot of trustee boards on a consulting basis, helping them to review and improve their approach to governance. I also have various people management responsibilities within my department, and I'm also co-chair of the LCP's Women's Network. So no day is ever the same. (laughs) Indeed. And it must be very interesting having a governance related role in a firm where clearly good governance is quite important. So you've got your consulting piece. You probably sometimes look across the firm and think that there are some thoughts that you have in terms of the way LCP does stuff, or certainly I'm sure you did when you first joined us. Well, the good thing is, is LCP is a very progressive firm. And so actually very open to feedback and make changes. But yeah, on the whole, I think we do a reasonable job. Cool. All right. Really looking forward to tapping into some of that experience you've got working with different organizations there, Rachika, on the governance. But just before we get into all of that, why don't you tell us one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? So it's very topical. I'm about 10 months into a huge home renovation. So we have a couple more months to go. And really after that, what I plan to do is just put my feet up and not be knee deep in tile samples and floor plans. And I'm very much looking forward to that day. And Ruchik has been documenting her house renovations, actually. So I've been following avidly all of the updates and all of the tiny little decisions that you've had to be making in the last 10 months. Yes, I feel you've all been on this journey with me. <laughs> well, a problem shared is a problem halved, right? So yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Have you been running project management on this one, Ruchika? I have project management, architectural services, interior design, the works, really. And the 12-month project, is that going to be on time? What do we think? On time, on budget? Definitely not on budget. (laughs) I could tell you that one for sure. Hopefully on time. I watch a lot of interior design programs and I'm not sure they ever finish on time. So they also never finish on budget. So you're not alone there. I'm just wondering, any issues with wood and raw material inflation and stuff like that? Yeah. So that's partly why we are over time and over budget. It's unfortunate, but we're getting there. Nice. So let's start the episode in earnest. We've wanted to talk to you about governance for some time, actually, Ruchika. We've been really keen to have an episode on this because it's such an important area. We've touched on aspects of decision making, but we haven't necessarily done that really big picture overview. But it seems a little bit remiss to talk to you about good governance and not mention the thing that's on the horizon this year for pension schemes, at least, which is the new single code of practice that will be coming out, we currently think, in the summer. And I think it would be really helpful if you perhaps start with giving us an overview of that single code, what the requirements are, what is it, when does it come out and who's it for as well? So just as a reminder, codes of practice basically exist to help us interpret underlying legislation. And this new single code that's coming out later this year is really no different. The code that's coming out this year is designed for two things, really. Firstly, it consolidates existing codes of practice that already exist. And secondly, it incorporates requirements introduced by the IOP2 directive. And we like to call this EU's parting gift to the UK. It's the last one, I think, that just about snuck in. And those requirements are really around having an effective system of governance or an ESOG and completing an own risk assessment or an Aura, so some nice new acronyms to add to our vocabulary. We love an acronym and it's not just the investment industry that's bad for it then. So governance is just as bad. I think the pensions industry as a whole is just as bad for acronyms. Yeah, I think IOP2 is definitely my favourite of the IOP, just to say straight off the bat. (laughs) That helps me understand why it's called a single code, I guess, because you're saying it's basically consolidated a load of stuff into one. So would you say this summer is it's coming in? Is that right? I always say quotation marks summer. 
because summer can range anywhere between June to September, perhaps. But we are hopeful that it's not going to be delayed again. Just as background, it was supposed to be introduced in autumn of last year and it got pushed back to this year. But we're very hopeful that this is the year of governance and we're going to see that new code come into force later this year. And applicable to? Applicable to occupational pension schemes, personal pension schemes and public service pension schemes. So very pension scheme specific. No limits on size or anything? No limits on size. One thing that's size related is there are some schemes where if you have less than 100 members, some of the requirements don't apply. Rules out the very small, but otherwise it's pretty much everyone. DBDC, Master Trust, everything. And I might know half of the answer to this, Rachika, given that you mentioned the single code is combining a number of existing codes, which is, of course, slightly tricky to wade through at times. But do you have a good sense of why this single code is coming in? And in particular, why now? So I think the regulator has been cognizant for some time that the existing codes of practice don't really meet the current needs of schemes. And I think the codes have been out of date for some time as well. And like I said, the code is an opportunity to address these issues, but also bring in a number of the new governance provisions that have been introduced by the IOP2 directive. So I think the timing's just worked perfectly in that sense. We've obviously been introduced to, I think, three fancy new acronyms in the newer requirements as opposed to the consolidating the existing codes. So are these things that were just completely lacking from the existing guidance and will for some trustee boards or many trustee boards be brand new things that they need to do? Or is it actually being slightly more prescriptive about things that people probably should have been doing anyway? So the own risk assessment or the aura, that's a completely new concept. So this is the thing that all schemes are going to have to navigate through later this year. In my opinion, I think an own risk assessment is going to evolve over time. I don't believe a scheme is going to get their aura perfectly in terms of format and content the first time around. I think it will evolve over time. I suppose in the same way that DC chair statements have evolved over time. The effective system of governance essentially pulls together existing requirements, but also introduces a couple of new policies and procedures. So particularly around having a remuneration policy, that's a brand new element of the ESOG. But by and large, all the ESOG does is it highlights what the regulator considers very important in terms of making sure that your scheme is well managed and well governed. And is there a phase-in of the requirements? So is there the expectation that there'll be a period of time in which schemes are allowed to get up to speed on it all? The ESOG requirements are actually already part of legislation. So they were introduced in the 2018 governance regulation. So actually, I think they came in force from January 2019. So actually, schemes should already be meeting the ESOG requirements. The own risk assessment, however, it's an annual requirement and your first one only becomes due 12 months after the code of practice is finalised. So yes, schemes will have 12 months to get their house in order for their first aura. But essentially for the ESOG, it's a requirement now, but a lot of schemes I think are choosing to start work on it this year. And when you say auras due every year, where does it go? Who looks at it? Is someone going to actually trawl through an aura from every UK pension scheme and judge it? That's a million pound question, Mary. So the way the code of practice is written at the moment states that the aura does not need to be submitted or disclosed. However, it says that the regulator can request to see your aura. Now, I would anticipate, for example, in a situation where your scheme is perhaps under one-to-one supervision, 
the aura might form part of the list of documents that the regulator asks for, as an example. We talked about the aura a little bit, and you've said that's one of the new bits, I guess, that's going to be a piece of work, presumably the trustees and skipping have to do. Why don't you give us the little thumbnail sketch of the rest of the single code? What are the other bits that are new enough that are going to require a bit of work, do you think, alongside the aura? So I think the main thing to note is that actually the effective system of governance is going to be almost like a Bible of policies and procedures that schemes will have to pull together. So for most well-governed pension schemes, I would anticipate that trustees might have a framework in many of these areas. However, under the ESOG requirements, you actually have to have documented policies. I've done a couple of ESOG gap analysis for quite a number of schemes now. And one thing I am finding is that often trustee boards do have good frameworks in place, for example, around reviewing and managing their advisors, but they don't necessarily have that written down. So as part of the ESOG, they're going to have to formulate more of a plan on how they actually structure those processes. I think that is not a bad thing. I think actually giving important processes some thought up front actually saves you time as you go through the year. So you don't have to stop and think every time a new process comes up, oh, what did we do last year? How do we actually structure this? I think it streamlines the process and actually makes it easier for trustees to focus on more strategic aspects of managing their role as well. I'm really glad you said that because I think it's very easy to look at these new requirements and think, This is just a lot of writing documents no one's really ever going to read for the sake of writing it when we've already got quite a good process in place. But I suppose actually what you're saying is if that upfront thought and documentation just makes things much more smooth in the future. And I guess, for example, if the membership of a trustee board changes, very easy to get a new trustee up to speed because you've got everything written down. It feels like actually there is some value in that. I think most definitely. And I think If you just look at the code, it's easy just to focus on, oh gosh, there's lots of new policies and procedures that you need to put in place and it's a lot of red tape. But actually, if we look at the code holistically, I think that the real benefit there is that you're getting an industry-wide focus on good governance and trustees are actually having to give time and attention to how they operate. I think that's only going to lead to improvements in how boards make decisions, better accountability, and I think better outcomes for members as well. That's great that you're feeling positive about it. I suppose that's a, that's a really good start, isn't it, with piece of legislation? Any bits that you think might go underappreciated? Any of it sort of surprise you a little bit in terms of the new requirements? I think it goes back to the point I mentioned earlier. Although the single code of practice is a consolidation of existing requirements, the ESOG does require more policies and processes to be formally documented. And I think potentially the amount of work required, even for a relatively well-run scheme, could be underappreciated. As I said, I'm very supportive of what the code is trying to achieve. And I think it's important that actually boards take a step back now and start working through the requirements of the ESOG and really understanding where the gaps are, just so they can come up with a clear plan of action to address the new requirements over the year. I think holding off doing some work now and then rushing it towards the end probably isn't probably going to achieve the best outcome for the trustees in terms of time they've spent putting processes and policies in place. Clearly, this is slightly preemptive because the new code hasn't come out. And I know it has evolved a bit over the period of consultations. Are any of the expected new requirements surprising to you? Or I suppose even comparing from the consultation version to the latest version, was there anything that 
came in or came out that you were not necessarily expecting or not sure what the driver was for those? I don't think any of the code of practice was particularly surprising. Ultimately, it's there to support better governance and schemes. I think it's very sensible, the areas that the regulator has highlighted, particularly within the ESOG. And the rest of the areas of the single code of practice, obviously, are things that schemes have been doing for quite a long time now. If we think back to even just internal controls and risk management, I mean, schemes have been doing that since I think around 2005, they've been actively looking at risk management. So there aren't any terribly surprising things. And I don't actually anticipate wholesale changes to the code that's going to be finalised. However, I do know that the regulator has had an enormous response to the consultation last year. And that's partly why they have been delaying the final version of this code. So I'm expecting the regulator to take on board some of the comments and clarifications that the industry suggested, but I can't see it being a wholesale change, particularly around the ESOG requirements. I know that from previous codes of practice, and we had, as we've highlighted, lots of different previous codes of practice, I think some of them were fairly good at being very informative for trustees to follow. And I don't want to go as far as saying prescriptive because every scheme is different, but really quite strong, quite detailed guidance on steps that might need to be followed or areas to look at or focus on or worry about. Other pieces of previous guidance have perhaps said, for example, you should think about things in an integrated way and not necessarily gone into the detail of actually what does that look like in practice and how do we do it? Do you feel that this new code strikes the right balance in terms of giving enough detail but not being so prescriptive that schemes that have different circumstances can't tweak the requirements to their needs? I do feel that the regulator perhaps has not gone far enough with this code or practice to give colour to exactly what is needed, particularly around the own risk assessment, which is a brand new requirement. However, I think the approach that they're taking is that they want the industry to develop an approach rather than it being led by the regulator, because the regulators are very keen that going forwards, governance is not a tick box exercise, that schemes are actually thinking about how do they develop risk assessment frameworks, for example, that are really tailored to each of the schemes. Rachika, any early feedback from pension schemes and trustees? You've spoken to a little bit about it already. How is it landing? Are people viewing it positively or is it being viewed as a lot of extra work? So it was really interesting because when the consultation came out last year, I think there was a bit of excitement, I would say, probably as excited as people can get about governance other than myself, of course. There was a bit of excitement last year. But when the finalisation of the code got pushed back, I think that excitement died down a little bit. And a lot of trustee boards were saying, well, we don't really want to do any work for this now because it's next year's problem. Well, it is next year now. And thankfully, a lot of trustee boards are now getting excited again about this code of practice. It's going on agendas. And we are seeing trustees actually starting to engage with what is an ESOG? What do we actually have to do? Where does our scheme's current processes fit in with the new requirements? So it's great to see that attention is turning towards the code of practice now. Highest level of excitement since I opt to. <laughs> so, Ritika, obviously, the single code is all about trying to encourage and fairly firmly encouraging good governance for pension scheme trustee boards. We've talked a bit about whether it gets the balance right. We've talked a bit about what the content and the detail is. What's the sort of read across to just general good governance and to what extent does this single code capture what you view as good governance? Is it full enough? Are there any big gaps? 
And what's your experience of what would really count as good governance? I think the the single code of practice is comprehensive in the sense that it captures quite a vast array of different aspects of good governance. I would say back to the point earlier, just in terms of how does that actually apply in practice? I think there's still a bit of a gap, a bit of an understanding that the industry needs to work through. But as I said earlier, it is throwing a real spotlight on good governance. And I think even from the very large schemes, the very small schemes, there's going to be an element of everyone looking at this and trying to apply the requirements in a proportionate way to schemes. And I think that's just generally going to have an uptake in good governance and schemes actually really looking at how they operate and wanting to make changes. I suppose the elephant in the room there in some ways is the idea of consolidation, which the regulator has been reasonably in positive about generally and various forms of that, I suppose, including things like fiduciary management, sole trusteeship, even more professional trustees, buyout, those sort of things. So I wonder whether even those kind of questions come onto the table a little bit when some schemes are reviewing their governance, but it's inevitable, right? Most definitely. There's a lot in the code of practice about setting strategies and objectives and reviewing your advisors and making sure you're well supported. So as schemes enter these big projects and big journeys, governance just becomes front and centre of those discussions. Rachika, what are some of the first things that trustees could do to actually get started on this? What are some really practical first steps? You mentioned the gap analysis, presumably. Is that, would that be part of it? Yeah, most definitely. As a very, very first step, if trustee boards aren't familiar with the single code of practice, it's really important that they get some training. So this can be at a board meeting or you can come along to our webinar, which is happening on the 24th of February. There's a shameless plug there. After you've had some initial training, I really do encourage trustees to have a read of our guide to the ESOG and actually complete a gap analysis. As we've mentioned earlier, although the code isn't actually being finalised until the summer, there's really no need to delay this analysis and taking steps now will give you a very clear plan of action on how to address the gaps. And for those very well-governed schemes that perhaps have already done those two first steps, I guess now you'll be focusing on working through how to actually implement the new ESOG policies and then turning attention to the own risk assessment later in the year. So Ruchika, maybe we now turn to more generally your experience. You've worked with a big range of schemes and asset owners over the years. What tends to get done well? What tends to be the pinch points where people struggle? So I am very lucky in my role. I get to work with a range of different pension schemes across different sectors. One thing I have learned over my career is there's no one size fits all when it comes to governance. And I am encouraged, actually, to see how attitudes towards governance has improved and how so many boards are actually genuinely embracing the benefits of good governance when it comes to making decisions and conducting their business. I do see a couple of key themes. So particularly where there is a professional scheme secretary in place, I see better management of trustee business in particular, more robust approaches to decision making and fewer things getting missed. And where you have a diverse board that is inclusive, there is most definitely better challenge and debate and much better working relationships with stakeholders. So those are some of the positives that I see. In terms of areas that are difficult, I think trustee engagement with risk management is a work in progress. But to give you some comfort, I have helped so many trustee boards to really engage with risk management and to make it a fun and enjoyable process. So it is difficult, but it's not impossible. 
Why do you think people struggle with the risk management aspect? Is it because the name makes it sound boring? Is it because people don't really know what a pension scheme risk looks like? Is it the lack of tangible examples or a mix or just general attitudes, do you think? I think it is a mix. And I think at the heart of it, what makes a very successful risk management framework is engagement and understanding. And I do feel that sometimes trustees just struggle to understand all the scheme risks, as you explained, Mary, but then also engage with the process because it is quite a dry process. And I can say that because I've been working in this area for nearly 15 years. It is quite a dry process. And if you don't break down your risk management framework to focus exactly on your objectives and what you're trying to achieve, it can be incredibly difficult to maintain and manage a very long list of risks. I suppose the key challenge there is you presumably get caught between a hugely long list of risks, which lack a few so what, and then that connection between all that and what the scheme is trying to achieve is often the bit that's the hardest bit, I guess, right? Most definitely. And so what we encourage the clients that we work with to do is to firstly identify what their objectives are. So what is it you're trying to achieve for your scheme, for example, and then work back and say, right, what are the main things that are going to stand between us and achieving our objectives. So you automatically go from having a long list of, say, 70 risks to maybe 12 or 15 that is just much more focused on what's important to you and therefore a lot easier to engage with. And I think part of the reason also that trustees in particular struggle to engage with risk management is because it's often a reactive process. So something happens and they say, OK, let's stick it on our risk register and put it as a red. But actually, that's not really how a risk framework should work. It should be forward looking. So I often work with trustees to actually go through a process and say, for the next 12 months or 18 months, what is really important to you and how do we plan going forwards? And getting trustees into that forward looking mindset, I think, really changes engagement and makes it a much more valuable process. To state the obvious, as part of that, trustees are risk managers, really, I suppose has become key to the role. I don't know if it was always seen that way, but maybe that's part of the difficulty that that's not as explicit as it could be sometimes. Yeah, it was probably something like April 2020, we were speaking to a guest about risk, Alison Schrager, and she was saying, actually, it's perhaps not that unhelpful for trustees' engagement or anyone's engagement with risk management what happened in March 2020 to markets, because it was a really, really firm reminder that things can go wrong slash different and they can happen very quickly. And actually, I think when you've got some of that recent experience in your mind and then you're asked to look forward for the next 12 months and think about what could go wrong, it's so much more tangible, isn't it, than thinking, well, nothing's really gone wrong for almost a decade, really. It's so much harder to think through what you would do in this situation where things go wrong if it's just not happened in your tenure as a trustee or advisor. So, Ruchika, you've talked a bit about things people do well. You've talked about what's difficult. You mentioned that where a professional secretary is involved, perhaps that makes it less likely that things get missed. But what kinds of things do get missed or can get missed? So I think groupthink and the impacts of financial risks and biases, particularly in relation to decision making. Now, that's something I think definitely gets missed by trustee boards. And we know that trustee boards, by their very nature, are susceptible to these risks. And we're just now seeing actually boards becoming a bit more alert to these issues. But I'd love to see a bit more focus 
in that area. And I think this is going to be another part of how we improve good governance and decision making in the industry. We've done a couple of episodes on Groupthink. We first did one, I think it was early-ish, 2020, I want to say, or maybe early 2021. We did another one called Zoom Think, where we were obviously reflecting on the virtual meeting setting and decision-making. And I suppose the next challenge is hybrid meetings and how that all works. Oh, most definitely. Rachika, you talked about planning ahead the next 12 to 18 months. I'm really keen to hear what's on your agenda for the next 12 to 18 months. What's the big focus, apart from single code, of course? It's the year of governance. So Mary, unfortunately, or fortunately, single code will be a large part of my role. And very much trying to make the requirements of the single code simple for trustees to follow and coming up with practical ways to help them navigate the changes. That's going to be a huge part of my role. I'm also a member of TPR's industry-wide DNI group. So I'm really excited to start working with trustees more in this area, having more open discussions around diversity and inclusion and really how we can move the dial in the industry. So I think it is going to be a big year for governance. And I'm really excited actually for us to see a little bit more focus on diversity and inclusion, because as we know, the industry as a whole, I think, can be doing a little bit better in this area. Is that mentioned specifically in the new single code and ESOGs? So unfortunately, diversity and inclusion do not feature in the single code of practice. Fortunately, the regulator is putting together a framework around DNI and they will be in due course publishing helpful tips and guidance that trustee boards can use in their own schemes. And it's great to hear you so enthusiastic about, well, this whole topic, to be honest. And it is something that sometimes when you say we're going to talk about governance, people do start expecting it to be boring. But I think we need more energy in that area because it's so important. So that's great. So, Rachika, as we start to wrap up, I might be able to guess this. What's the one thing that you would like listeners to take away from today's episode? No spoiler alerts here. But I really do think that good governance can be underappreciated in investing. And just to give an example, I suppose, investors often have an aim, whether it's to grow assets or match liabilities. But it can be, I guess, hard to stay on course, say, when markets are falling. So I really do believe that if you do have a clear governance framework around your strategy, it can take out some of that emotion and ensure that you are making effective decisions aligned to your objectives. And I think that that applies equally to whether you're an individual investor or trustees of a pension scheme. I completely agree with that. And I'm trying to relate it to things you can actually control, like you just said, to decisions you can actually take. I think so much of our focus can be used up by things that seem really important or urgent, but actually we can't influence even if we wanted to. So that's key to it, isn't it? And Rachika, I think you answered the question about one thing listeners should take away and the most underappreciated thing about investing in one answer. But actually, I watched a really good TED talk last week. It happened to be on the subject of racism, but it was talking about the benefit of a one-track mind. And as you just answered that, I thought, you know what, that's brilliant because you've effectively given the same answer to both questions, but I think it fits very well in both places. If I could actually just leave one thing with the listeners, I think I'd like to draw out that good governance isn't just about ticking a box or having a bit of paper that you can say, oh, I've done it. It really is an ongoing process. It develops and strengthens over time. Don't feel pressured, particularly around the single code of practice, for example. So don't feel pressured to have everything in place on day one and perfectly working. The key is that you invest time in developing your governance frameworks over time and that it changes as your scheme changes. 
let's be honest, a lot of regulation can turn into a bit tick boxy, paperworky stuff, can't it? A lot of stuff does go that way, which is often a shame because it's often well intended. But yeah, I suppose we'll see, won't we, whether there is that energy there to really embrace it properly and turn it into an ongoing thing. It would be great if that was the case, but that takes real effort, doesn't that, I suppose, and continuous energy being put into it. Rachika, we're almost done. Do you have any recommendations for listeners, books, podcasts, you know, anything really? If I could, I'd love to spotlight two books written by friends. So first is Munchkin's Adventures by Karen Farrell, which is a delightful children's book. And secondly, it's Sunset Survivors by Lindsay Varty, which tells stories of traditional tradesmen and women in Hong Kong whose professions are falling into obscurity. Now, I love this book because I grew up in Hong Kong, so it's very personal to me. They're both brilliant, so check them out. Fantastic. Nice to have some slightly more personalised recommendations. And Karen used to work at LCP, so we remember her fondly. Great. We'll put the links to those in the show notes. Rachika, it's been an absolutely great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much, Dan and Mary. Thanks, Rachika. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.